Hello and welcome to Pop Screen, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network, where the show that likes to take a, a sideways look, is there any other kind, at the world of movies either starring by or about pop stars. No, the podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a filmmaker and critic for thegeekshow.co.uk and horrified the British horror magazine. I'm joined this week Bye. I'm Mark Harrison. I'm a writer and occasional quiz master for film stories uh, and Vodzilla.co and various other outlets. Nice. Now, the 2008 film Mamma Mia, directed by Felida Lloyd from the play by Catherine Johnson, deals with Amanda Seyfried's quest to discover whether Colin Firth, Stellan Skarsgård, or Pierce Brosnan is her father. At the start of the sequel, titled Mamma Mia, here we go again. Siegfried has accepted that she effectively has three fathers, much like the inbred baby in that episode of The X-Files that they can't repeat on American networks. The sequel itself also has additional parentage, both on screen with a role for Cher as the mother of the Meryl Streep character from the original, and behind the camera with the script credited to Johnson, incoming director Ol Parker, and one Richard Curtis, who I think we've got priors with, haven't we, Mark? Yeah, we did do that one. We did the Patreon episode on yesterday, and um, coming into this, it is worth saying, because I listened back to that yesterday episode a little while ago, and I realised that early on, so we're not going to say nasty things about Richard Curtis. Mm. We definitely did. Um, and I'd like yeah. to clarify, yeah, I'd like to clarify from the outset here. I don't have a problem with certain Richard Curtis films. I think he's an atrocious person. That's all it is. <laughs> <laughs> he's terrible as a person. He has his moments as a writer and director, but bad, bad man. Yeah, it, it's not artistic. It's purely personal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as long as, he, <laughs> as long as he knows that, it is personal. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, but before we get on to that, we should probably talk a bit about our experience with the first film, because this is the first time we've done a sequel without doing the original. We did a Patreon exclusive about Stardust, the 1974 David Essex film, which is a, a sequel to That'll Be The Day, but we had already done That'll Be The Day. This is the first time we've set ourselves the perverse task of talking about the sequel to a film that we have not talked about the original for Hmm. Well, we can, we can pretty much just do it in capsule because there's not a lot to talk about with that first one. The original film, the original Mamma Mia, is is crap. It's it's a screen adaptation of a of a you know a, 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 a musical that basically started tailing off with its ticket sales enough in order to make a film, as happens with you know big breakout hits. Uh, and there's nothing to it. It's a filmed version of, of um, a bunch of celebrities dancing around singing ABBA songs. Um, the reason I've suggested uh, Mamma Mia, here we go again, and would like to be on this episode in general is because I think the sequel, uh, weirdly, is less of a story, but more of a film. My, my main issue with the original Mamma Mia is that it's hardly a film. It's just sort of a succession of, it, it is, and, and I know how, you know, there's negligible plotting from one number to the next and the second one, especially as they've used a lot of the most famous ABBA numbers in the first one. Mm. But, you know, just the basic level of putting something cinematic um, into this in terms of this, the um, as we'll get into the story and whatnot makes it better than the first one which is it I mean it's all it's always better to talk about the first one yeah yeah by comparison how much better the second one does it because I'm choking on my own rage here because my, my, my current <laughs> most recent bugbear with the first Mamma Mia is that um, 
you know, we've been in lockdown and stuff. Cinemas have um, have been closed. They've been very drive-through uh, screenings and stuff when it's allowed. And a lot yeah. of these are programmed. And Mamma Mia makes a lot of programs for a lot of them. Whenever there's a vote on what film they're going to screen at a drive a drive-in screening, like like it, people descend on mass as if Colin Firth and his mates in a flotilla of boats all singing Dancing Queen <laughs> to vote Mamma Mia for number one, which is like. I don't like it's not how I understood people watched Mamma Mia. You can't drink and drive, so like, how can you, why would you want to go to a driving screen? Can you not just do donuts around the car park outside a cinema, listen to Andante, Andante, or something like that? I don't know. It's, I don't yeah. see what people get out of the driving screenings of Mamma Mia. Well, my experience with the first one, I haven't seen the whole thing, but I've around the time that it was out on DVD. I worked in a care home and every time it was like movie afternoon at the care home, they always played Mamma Mia. And because many of our residents had hearing problems, they played it at a splitting volume. Uh, so I remember three things. Two of them, I think, are the film's fault. One of them isn't. Uh, the thing that I can't blame the first film for is that I once had to field a very difficult phone conversation about a woman whose relative was suffering from Alzheimer's while mm. in the next room Pierce Brosnan was singing SOS. Oh dear. Oh no. <laughs> uh, if you haven't heard this, listeners, it, it, it is basically like an exploding cow. <laughs> We'll, we'll get around to Brosnan because no one's trying harder, bless him, and they sort of reward him for it in the sequel, I would say. Yes, yeah, they do. <laughs> but the, the two sort of problems that I had with the actual filmmaking rather than the, the decision to watch it at that particular time uh, hmm. were firstly... I think Felida Lloyd, while she's a very accomplished stage director and was indeed brought in because she helmed the original West End version of uh, Catherine Johnson's play, yeah. uh, she just doesn't have much of a sense of camera blocking and it's almost cruel to give someone a musical as their first film directorial project because it is such a demanding genre. But the, every time I walked in, uh, to that room when this DVD was playing and I saw the TV I just remember thinking well that's some nice dancing but the camera's just sort of stuck in the corner to capture it yeah yeah you, you put it much better than I have but that's what I mean when I say it's it's just a filmed version it's not a screen adaptation really all the, the, the first film and this one by having to contrive how the hell do we make another one of these has to have yes. some creativity to it and uh, but yeah the direction i feel is much improved too and uh, there's there's also another weird problem with the first one which again i think is corrected um which is that the timeline of the first film is so weird because mamma mia the stage show i think started off in the mid to late 90s i want to say something yeah, like that, yeah. that yeah yeah if the film was 2008 it was probably a good decade into its run by the time it made it to a film yeah because as you say that's how adaptations of stage musicals work they wait until the amount of money they can take by getting people to go and see it in the theater has died down and then they make a film which means at best practice you were looking at 10 years later hmm. um and the weird thing about the first film is that they obviously hadn't updated the timeline of it. So you had weird things like Stellan Skarsgård when uh, Amanda Seyfried's character Sophie was trying to work out if he was 
uh, her father or not, saying, oh, well, when I had my relationship with your mother, it was during the era of peace and love. And you think, oh, right, Amanda Seyfried is a, a young-looking mid-40s then? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but this actually nails that from the start. It nails it so thoroughly that there is a, an insane bit where they actually sort of hint as strongly as they can that when two characters sing Fernando, they are mm -hmm. singing about the Mexico-Guatemala conflict of 1959, which is a level of historical exactitude that I was not expecting in a Mamma Mia sequel. I mean, historical exactitude doesn't necessarily, yeah, it doesn't necessarily come into the equation. I think it's almost like a fictional Mexican war of like a revolutionary war of, of some kind that they've just embedded into this. It's, it's certainly, if they decide in 10 years' time to do this again, if they yeah. have to do the same again, they will, my friend, <laughs> with, um, <laughs> with, you know, probably a flashback to the 1950s with that going on, I imagine. <laughs> because, mm. yeah, the, the, the sort of, um, they, they go with the sort of broken back structure of, of, of the Godfather part two. Is the, you know, I've, I've, yes. <laughs> I've, I've alluded to this. So if, if this is your first time you've seen the sequel for this podcast, Graham. It is, yeah. You yeah. yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So it's, it, I think it does come out of that thing of, um, it does come out of that thing of how the hell do we do this again? And um, when you, uh, the story by credit goes to Richard Curtis, um, who tells the story about, you know, when he's looking at how he wanted to do this, or as he tells it, he had the idea. And when you listen to what the actual details of the story are, his daughter Scarlett had the idea uh, to <laughs> turn it into a Godfather 2. Isn't he? Yeah, yeah. You, well, you know, if you, if you believe there's a story about him where he's not the protagonist of it, then uh, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. I've got a sequel to Mamma Mia to tell you, um, but the uh, God, the Godfather Part Two is the is the sort of structural uh, uh, template for this. Where similarly to that film, which flashes back and shows Robert De Niro as a younger Don Corleone uh, going on in the, the the long long ago from where Al Pacino now is now as the current Godfather, um, this sets up uh, Lily James as uh, the younger version of Meryl Streep's character who has um, since passed away. Which this was like I remember when the trailer for this first came out. Mm. And the reaction was sort of, wait, what? Like, you've killed off Meryl Streep between between films. Because that is the thing, right? I think most people, if you ask them what is the major asset of Mamma Mia other than having access to ABBA's back catalogue, they would say, well, you've got Meryl Streep to be in it. Yeah. I mean, and that's in evidence, you know, with the, the shortcomings of the first one is that while she is singing uh, The Winner Takes It All on a, on a cliff and the wind's blowing, it's dramatic. She's, doing, she's belling out like it's Shakespeare. Uh, Pierce Brosnan is his <laughs> second on the call sheet for this scene and is sort of awkwardly rubbing the back of his neck with no choreography, just kind of listening. <laughs> So there's, there's no question that whenever, you know, Meryl Streep is elevating a lot of that film, it's, mm. it's got to be said. Um, her not being in this one, I've, I've not been able to find any, like, specific, like, you know, other than the cast generally at certain stages of them saying, could we do another one? And not mm. being convinced that it wouldn't be, well, you know, the, the, the first one is what it is. I feel the first one is a cash grab, so it's it'd be a bit rich to go, ah, but, you know, the reason to come back and do it again. Yeah. I'm looking at it, I don't think it was a scheduling thing because from when it came out, she would either have been off filming The Post, which I think came together quite quickly, like Spielberg sort of in between Ready Player One. Uh, Spielberg sort of thing. is good at knocking them out pretty fast, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, I think that came together fairly quickly while post-production of Ready Player One was going on. Or Mary Poppins Returns, in which she's only in it for, for one scene, but I don't know how much that, that is another musical scene. So I'm not sure what it was that she's not in this, although there was a decision early on to just go, all right, well, rather than pay Meryl Streep for the sequel, <laughs> we'll just have her pop in, in and out occasionally. But I remember that. I remember the reaction to that online just straightforwardly being like, what have they done? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I think it actually works pretty well because it gets straight into the stuff with young Donna. Um, and again, the dates are pinned down. She graduates in 1979. So Stellan Skarsgård's comments in the first film are clearly the result of some <laughs> sort of early onset dementia. Um, well, well, crucially, she graduates. We see her graduate because we need a scene where they're saying, when I kiss the teacher, how else are they going to crowbar that in? What a <laughs> weird number that is, though, isn't it? Because it's like they, they, they realise it could sound quite dodgy, so they change all the pronouns so she's kissing a female teacher, which I find raises more questions than it answers, if we're honest. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, apparently it's just one of, um, apparently in the storylining st um, process, they basically just put a list of all their favourite ABBA songs rather than just all the songs that weren't in the first film. So all their favourites in heavy air quotes ABBA songs and then figured out how they would fit into the plot, which I believe is absolutely why we started, is it Oxford University and, we do, and Donna's yes. graduation? Yeah. <laughs> But that also gives you a big cameo basket, like all of the teachers in it are yeah. members of the original stage production of Mamma Mia. Apart from oh. one, uh, Bjorn Ulvaeus of ABBA is one <laughs> of the faculty, and his main memory is being startled at just how boring film sets are. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, um, so you have that scene and it does immediately just... I, it's it's sort of one of those. What's the? I think the online nomenclature for it is a big lipped alligator moment. It's just this thing that happens where the university, <laughs> the graduation, really has no bearing on the rest of the plot because she's immediately off and out, uh, on, on off to meet the three lovers from the first film. But it sets up a sort of attitude, isn't it? Mamma Mia, here we go again. If like Mamma Mia is a foreign holiday with your friends uh, who also hmm. can't sing and dance. Um, then Mamma Mia, here we go again, has a sort of breezy last day of term kind of a feel, doesn't it? Yeah, there is that, I suppose, yeah. That's, yeah, as a lead-in. That it makes also, sense. I mean, it also introduces you to Alexa Davis and Jessica Keenan Wynn, who I think are the real sort of finds of the uh, casting in this film, because they have the utterly unenviable task of playing mm. younger versions of the characters played by Julie Walters and Christine Baranski, both of whom are basically inimitable, and they really make an impression in those roles, I think. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, on top of that, I'd say that, like, as much as we said, uh, Meryl Streep is sort of like, the, that was a load-bearing Meryl Streep they've taken out of this for the sequel. But, um, <laughs> yes. but, but Lily James, I don't think, like, Lily James has never been better than she is in this, I would say. Because there's, there's many films where, like, I'll grant you, you know, there's, you know, she's she's good in Baby Driver, which is the best of these films that puts her in a love interest role and gives her nothing to do, really. But yeah, she's, um, yeah, she's on fantastic form in this. I, I yeah, I, I was prepared to disagree when you said never better, but you're right. A lot of her roles are supporting kind of girlfriend roles, and hmm. 
I'm, I'm trying to say this without sounding like I'm passing some sort of judgment on Lily James's personal life, but um, when you have a character like young Donna, whose characteristic is free-spirited, life-loving girl dialed to about 80 squillion, she is one of the few people who can actually persuade you that that is grounded in some psychological truth. Yeah, I mean, she's, yeah, she's just brilliant and she's just glowing all the way through it, really. Mm. Yeah, she can sing as well, which is a step up from from um, <laughs> from a lot of the casting elsewhere. Obviously, Meryl Streep discounted, but then brilliantly, is I, I want to say this, I want to hope this was intentional and brilliant. They've sort of mm. cast three guys opposite her who are as good, either as good at singing or as good at, you know, tailing their own performances to the terrible performances of their adult counterparts. I'm really <laughs> glad you said that because my, my f- main takeaway from Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, was wondering if men can sing. <laughs> if these were the only musicals you've ever seen, you would wonder, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, yeah. Those actors are not familiar to me, apart from uh, the one... Is it Jeremy Irvine playing the young Brosnan, the young Sam? Yeah, it's young, young Bronholm. Yeah. yeah. And it's he's, he's, he manages to sort of pitch his... I, I, like, um, I remember reading at the time the film came out, he worked with Brosnan <laughs> to sort of sync up their performances. <laughs> I, don't know if that, I don't know if that extends to the singing as well, but he is in that sort of like... He's, he's sort of in that range. Say, when they do the knowing me, knowing you number, it is very funny to me that Jeremy Irvine basically gets the Alan Partridge part. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> Jeremy stand there and say, aha, it'll be all right. Yes. It's going to be all right. <laughs> I mean, um, it depends on whether you want to. Let's get into this now, actually. Right? Brosnan yeah. gets a lot of crap right, for the first film and for SOS, uh, yeah. you know, and, and not unreasonably so. It's 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 he's just sound like he's passing something while he's singing it. But my yes. my contention with this is that like Stellan Skarsgård's very game for it as well. My mm. contention is that Colin Firth doesn't get um, nearly enough shit for the way he phones it in, in these songs. He's way more fun in his performance. Brosnan can't sing, but it doesn't stop him trying. That's like there's yeah. something, there's something what... heroic in a cinematic way about him doing things, even though he can't. I would I would argue across these two films, and he got absolutely slated for it in that first film. So in the second one, which song do they give him? They give him SOS. Yes, <laughs> and, and you know it feels like a reward for like okay. I mean, notably his rendition of SOS from the second one is not on the soundtrack. It's not on the cast recording soundtrack for the sequel, that, and that's fair enough. But mm. you know, it, it's it's turned into a lament for this is the fact that he's now been widowed because Meryl Streep's character has been killed off, and it gives him a chance to do some acting. It's not much better vocally, but he's he gets to do some acting with it. He's being they know what Colin Firth's going to do. He's going to stand at the front of the board, wave his arms around and not do anything. But Brosnan is absolutely putting his full ass into it the yeah. entire film. Like, right down to the fact where at the end of this one, there's literally a bit where there's a coordinated dance number going on with, like, you know, trained dancers and, and other cast members, not necessarily trained dancers, and he is completely <laughs> out of sync with all of them. And it's yeah. so annoying. It's, it's, it's a dad dancing energy. In a film with has three dads, three lead yeah. dads, he is the daddest of the lot. <laughs> yeah, I will give you that. There is something of the essence of Brosnan in how he just absolutely goes for it. And I, I do, I, I was very amused by the fact that they 
take that thing about the original that became a running gag everywhere after it came out that his version of SOS is so sort of bellowing and off-key and make it into this tender moment. Do you suppose that they were slightly inspired there by how the song SOS is used in Ben Wheatley's High Rise? What a question. <laughs> it's entirely possible. <laughs> I mean, it's, I, I, I think that as I say, like from, from where I'm sat, I think it's like, to quote the meme, Brosnan like understands the assignment. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. He <laughs> knows what he's in for, and I do think he's... I mean, it's not to go too hard on Colin first, frankly, but like... But um, yeah, but everything I was saying about the younger actors, you know, uh, you know, Hugh Skinner, I think... Harry, Harry Skinner? Hugh Skinner? Hugh Skinner. I think it is Hugh is Skinner, the, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think he plays Harry in Fleabag. That's possibly where I've got mixed up. So he's kind of the uh, wet yes. boyfriend, and they give him uh, that really tortured rendition of Waterloo to do. <laughs> on, the other, on the other end of things, yeah, you, you do have this acknowledgement in the middle of the film of a more low key version of SOS. So, yeah, mm. could, it did come out of the high rise, didn't it? I think that was like 2015. Yeah, was yeah. That? So it, it could yeah. have happened because that has it, listeners. If you're not familiar with what we're talking about, uh, there are two versions of SOS on the soundtrack to High Rise. There is a, a sort of gag version where they played on a string quartet, and then there is a genuinely emotionally devastating cover version of it by Parsis Head. Hmm. I remember describing this to someone who hadn't seen the film yet. I said, "Oh yeah, there's this, you know, the, the, there's this uh, slow, sad part his head version, and like what, as opposed to the bouncy, dancey part his head <laughs> track." <laughs> and I was like, "Too sure, fair enough." <laughs> yeah, um, th- those young cast members. Th- this is where I have a bit of a problem with the film, really, because for all. The, the quality of the older cast members' actual performances and singing in the original is, as we've noted, massively variable. I do think part of the sort of selling point of Mamma Mia and part of what made it resonate culturally is that you have this story about loving life and doing your own thing and being free-spirited played by people in their 50s and 60s, and that is still a very, very rare thing to see. And watching it done with younger people, even though that central like trio of Lily James, Alexa Davis and Jessica Keenan win are wonderful in this, but hmm. it's something that we've seen before, really, isn't it? I would say that it is. I mean, this is why the sort of the jump in between prequel and sequel thing works out for me, because you are seeing them. It's like the way as much as like, as you say, the continuity is all over the place. We are relating this back to, however, you know, however unlikely. I mean, however unlikely it is that these young ones, like you know, in terms of appearance, might match mm. up to the older ones. Like it's been pointed out elsewhere that Stellan Skarsgård has a lot of kids who act, and yet somehow they went to, <laughs> yes. and yet somehow they went to Josh Dillon. And fair enough, it's all done. It's it's. Um, I think that, like, doing a sequel ten years later is going to be about nostalgia anyway. So yeah. the idea of doing this in in the the seventies, not hardly in the time of free love, fair enough, but doing this at a time when they're younger plays into that. But then it does link to the present day stuff where you've got Brosnan thinking about what a tool he was when he was <laughs> when he's in the seventies, and it's this genuine, you know, this this uh, the sort of genuine amends in a way, like the way that it links. You know, you can link him running off in the seventies to him singing SOS in the church. Yeah, if that makes sense. as much as you know, not to overstate it, because I know like 
this isn't always frivolous, you know, it's like, and there's nothing wrong with that. It, the Brosnan, the film like Brosnan understands the assignment. And I think it, it's, it, it's crowd pleasing and it's nostalgia. It's not about replacing the older, the older casts with a young cast. And now this is the thing. It does yeah. manage to go between the two. You know, like, you know, it's, it's, if anything, it's more connected up than The Godfather's Part 2 is with its, <laughs> with, its, with its prequel and sequel leanings. You know, this this is about, you know, going, to, it's 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 the same as the first one has that overlong third act. This has an overlong third act. But, you know, it's, it knows its audience and it plays mm. to its audience well enough that a lot of men will have avoided it. So Kevin Feige probably didn't sweat much about this doing the same epic break into third as Avengers Endgame about nine months early, where instead <laughs> of Alan Silvestri honking on the orchestra, it's just dancing queen in a shit ton of boats, <laughs> like with Colin Firth and Stellan Skarsgård leaning over the pro doing Titanic and their eyes seem to say on your left. You know, My <laughs> God, I hadn't really thought about this, but you're right, that is the same story beat as Avengers Endgame, isn't it? I would love it if you could scrutinise this frame by frame and also find Howard (laughs) the Duck at the back of one of those crowds. I bet if you put, yeah, probably, but I bet if you swapped the tracks around, if you just put like that answer vestry portals music over... Over Mamma Mia, here we go again. It would be crap. But if you put Dancing Queen over the Paul scene from Avengers Endgame, it'd be great because Avengers Endgame is just Mamma Mia, here we go again for nerds. <laughs> okay, okay. We're talking about the music now, so we should <laughs> we should get into it. We should talk about our rabba feelings, I think. Yeah, I was thinking about this generally because it's um like I was sort of thinking, like when did I first like hear ABBA? Because ABBA is just omnipresent. If you've if you've got a mum who's got ABBA gold on CD or on tape or whatever, you know, when you when you're growing up, you're just going to hear ABBA. I remember specifically when I'm thinking back, like when was the big sort of thing when I was younger. Um, I remember when I looked this up, and it was like 1999. There was um there was a thank ABBA for the music tribute medley type thing in the charts. Oh yeah, done. It was yeah. like so. It was, yeah, it was a sort of like super group thing. There was like uh, those steps. There was Cleopatra. There was Billy Piper. And obviously that's that was hardly my gateway. To it. These are songs I'd heard, you know, sat in the kitchen with my mum growing up. Anyway, mm. but the weird thing that I remember is that I once spent an afternoon shortly after. It must have been shortly after that, and it was a point when Channel Five hadn't been going that long, and they're just yeah. playing films most weekends. Uh, I, w- I ended up watching Abba the movie, like off my own bat. Did you ever see this? The docudrama. It's uh, Lasse Hallström, isn't it? It's one of his yeah. early credits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he directed most of their music videos, so he co-wrote and directed it. And it's just this sort of like, it's it's not exactly a hard day's night, but you know, it's it's kind of like sort of a proto concert film, really. It's yeah. like sort of done as a radio DJ chasing Abba all over Australia while they're on tour, um, trying to do like the first interview of his career with with, with the biggest band in the world. The plot, such as it is, is that, and yeah. it's you know, argue like arguably less plot than Mamma Mia, here we go again, but more plots than the first Mamma Mia, let's be fair. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just have this weird, it's, it would have been the only time I'd have ever watched this, but like I, I have this memory of just watching that off my own bat. And so I'm going, oh yeah, Abba. Mm. <laughs> you know, it, it, like, you know, of it being a, like, it's a weird thing because it's, it's not a great film by any means, but as a pretext for like showing lots of live performances by a band. Yeah. Like that was, I think, where young idiot Mark kind of appreciated ABBA for the first time, really. 
For me, it's funny you should mention that all-star cover thing, because I think the first time I was really consciously aware of ABBA, like you, I'm sure I'd heard their songs thousands of times just sort of playing on the radio when I was a kid, because they are yeah. culturally omnipresent. First time I was aware of it was in, I think, 92, when Erasure, who I was very, very into yeah. as a child, uh, released an EP of ABBA covers that got to number one. And... Yeah you would think that that would translate into more fondness for them as an adult. You would think that would have more sort of warm childhood feelings about ABBA, but I don't really. And we we were talking when we did the episode on Holy Motors about how every episode of this show becomes a kind of Stockholm Syndrome thing. Uh, where <laughs> I search it so much that I always come out as a fan. And certainly during Holy Motors, that has translated into a, a genuine long-term fondness for Kylie Minogue and an admiration for her place in popular culture. But even looking into ABBA for this, it's, it never clicked with me. Oh, right. I mean, it's... it's... Well, where am I? You know, I'm not now at the stage where I would go and watch Abba the movie off my own bat. Unless <laughs> someone else, well, unless someone else in the house wanted to. Next year, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> we may have to. I'll see you back here. <laughs> uh, let's let's do it the way they did the Mamma Mia films. Like in ten years' time, we'll do a we'll do another yeah. episode. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's it's a thing of it's a weird thing of like it's it's one of those. It's one of those objective fact things. Is that there's it really? It's just it's like they're an objective fact of pop. I would say, yeah, like one of yeah. the few because they're there. You know, mostly through the seventies and then little resurgence again, early eighties, and they're just all. I mean, they're not all all timers, but you know, there's there's a range of you know there's a range of pop to it. It's not just going to be this the same type of song over and over again. I would say there's a a, a world of difference between like just within the the songs that are in this film between. Dancing Queen and My Love My Life, you know, like the single, yeah. the breadth of singles and pop that they put out, which just reliably on on bass. Yeah, I think there's there's certainly some sort of baseline of quality to it, and the main musical impression I had from this film is that when you play the orchestrations to ABBA songs as incidental music, as they do frequently in this movie, it sounds hmm. really solid. It sounds perfectly fitting. It works very well. I think, although this movie does carry it off better than the first one, there is still the point that when they start actually singing these things... Uh, <laughs> I was reminded that I have never thought about the lyrics to ABBA songs before. And watching this, I am just sat there thinking, yeah, this really wasn't written to progress the plot of a musical, wasn't it? Like, in a couple <laughs> of weeks' time, we'll do Rocket Man, which is a similar kind of jukebox musical. And I don't want to talk about it now, because like I say, we'll be doing it, but it has strategies so that it is not having to really stretch to shoehorn things like Benny and the Jets in there. And I don't think that the either Mamma Mia movie really handles it as gracefully as that film does. Yeah. I mean, there's a case to be made. There's a case that is made generally that both, you know, where people are saying that the first one and second one are a guilty pleasure or whether they're genuinely good films. Mm. There's people say that um, that the songs are so indestructible that even, you know, uh, whether it's 
Meryl Streep doing it Shakespeare style or Pierce Brosnan being the wounded cow or whatever <laughs> it is. People say this is so indestructible that you can't make a bad film with them in. I don't know whether that's true or not because I've seen the first Mamma Mia. Um, but <laughs> I think that in this one, with it's it's just a, it's a weird thing because it's not anything that's set up in the first one. And indeed, the things they do say about the past and when these, these um, three hooked up with Donna in the past, like... The things that they do tell you are all massively contradicted here because mm. you know they're just finding new roads to to, to make sequel on. But like yeah. but as they make sequel, what a weird turn of phrase! I'm not going to use that again. As they're doing <laughs> that, as they're building, as they're building, what the continuation of the going backwards into this? It's just like it is in a way it's just the audacity of like some of the needle drops i say the when i kiss the teacher mm. and you know F- fernando which i'm sure we're going to talk we'll talk about the fernando moment oh, in more boy. detail shortly yeah. but this this film i've already mentioned um my love my life which i think is a lovely abba song it's like one of one of the ones i don't think gets like it's not going to be on a discourse certainly but you know it's i think it's yeah. a beautiful song and i think that the way this film uses it is beautiful not least because it is bringing back that that um, lord bearing meryl streep at the end there yes. i think that i think that as a climactic point for this film for a sequel to have that emotional payoff even if it is followed by more karaoke sesh credits mm. stuff which is what you want to you know you don't want to leave a mamma mia film crying but the fact cops, that people came yeah. out with mamma the fact that people came out this saying mamma mia made me cry <laughs> and yeah. you know that it does it does by the end of it you've traveled that far to where oh you do care about these characters where you maybe just off the bat from the first one not so much like i think it does put the work in yeah, and I, I think when when I say that I'm not sure that these songs work as musical numbers, it's not through one oh, of yeah. trying. Like, what, <laughs> yeah. Waterloo is not a song that anyone would write if they were composing an original musical, <laughs> but the it's... staging of Waterloo is wonderful. They're certainly putting the most effort into that. Yeah, oh, I definitely agree that these do not naturally fit in a jukebox musical. But it's a weird thing of like having to follow, like with this, with the first one just being an adaptation of the play, in which yeah. they also didn't really fit into a story, and you have to contort <laughs> the story to do it. Like th- th- that being a hit is what really kicked this off, both on stage and in in films. You know, yeah. so, so so you get to the point of like, for instance, I like um, another film by Rocketman director Dexter Fletcher. I like Sunshine on Leith, oh, yeah. and the hoops that jumps through to make Proclaimers songs work. Yeah. Um, you know, it is one of the weaknesses of that film. I still like that film. And then in Rocket Man, it has got a slightly more spectacular, sh- like sort of showy songs. Yeah, and for and for Abba, you have you are fully just contorting yourself to yes. fully contorting themselves to, to put it to make it work there. But it's like I think that it won't like the, where the first one is purely a mood piece. Oh, I love this one. You know what I mean? That sort of yeah. thing. Oh, I love this song. Yeah. The, the second the second one is more successful as a story, even if, as I said, like it's less of a story and yet somehow feels more cinematic, more like a film than the first one did in the way that it joins those things up. Well, if we're talking about extraordinary excuses to put particular ABBA songs in, <laughs> I mean, we're talking about Fernando, right? Uh, it's the, the it won an Oscar that film, you know, for for uh, the the greatest reveal of Andy Garcia's character name that year and any other year. <laughs> I'm fairly sure. I, I, I haven't looked it up. I haven't got Wikipedia open, but I'm fairly sure. I, I mean, love Andy Garcia in general. I think he's absolutely yes. wonderful. And there is this whole thread in Mamma Mia, here we go again, when uh, Cher 
playing Sophie's grandmother and Donna's mother is constantly hinted at being about to return. And, you know, that there's a line about her which makes no sense other than in the context of a character being played by Cher, where someone says she hasn't <laughs> been seen outside Las Vegas in decades. And you think, God, imagine if they've got like Ellen Burstyn to play that part <laughs> or someone. It would make no <laughs> sense at all. But uh, we talked about Cher a couple of weeks back on this show when we covered Burlesque. And according mm. to Cher, the reason why Burlesque did not work is because her character did not have a love interest. Now, I would say that is quite far down the list of reasons why Burlesque didn't work. But this time, she picked out her love interest. She hand-selected Andy Garcia <laughs> to play her love interest. And what what's he referred to as throughout this? There's, he has Senor, a... yeah, Senor Cienfuegos. It's um, it's very, very determinedly just Senor. He doesn't go by a first name. They call oh, him no. Senor. His surname is Cienfuegos. And then um, <laughs> the moment arrives. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as Cher's character claps eyes on him, she just gasps and goes, Fernando. Yeah, like across a crowded plaza, time and space itself stop for this intro to this song that they've been they've been tearing up hilariously for the for the entire film. <laughs> and it's amazing because I remember Peter Bradshaw's review in The Guardian of the original film, which which panned it and said that you know it, it is tell it, it talked actually about how much they were having to shoehorn the songs in and said as by way of proving this you know it is telling that they don't do waterloo or fernando and i would mm. love 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 to think that all parker read that and thought aha challenge accepted <laughs> They'll fit even if they don't. <laughs> that does seem to have been the process with um, some of the yes. some of the sun tea ups in this. But it um it's a wild scene and, and quite rightly, you know, is is the most acclaimed thing. Like for starters, like, you know, Cher's helicopter arriving and stuff, and it is the you know, the moment that's in the trailer anyway. So mm. on top of that, she hasn't been seen outside of Las Vegas. If you saw the trailers for this going in, you know the whole film is building up to this. So like the just having the the Fernando thing at its pocket is just the, the gravy, really. It's yeah. just the, as I said, as I say, it's a crowded plaza that they're in. It's, they're at the big party at the end and stuff, and it's just pretty much just stop for them to gaze at each other and sing about the frightful night that crossed the Rio Grande and all that. You know, I think that it's like looking around this, like looking around all of this. I think it is they did just make up a war that they can do. And frankly, if in ten years' time we're back here. They do. I mean, I can't like the. I, I credit this to Ross Miller on Twitter who said it when this was going around when it came out release. I look went and looked back who it was. Like the popular, uh, most horny like headcanon version of Mamma Mia in everyone's head is a, is a film that does this again. That does the prequel thing, mm. um, but it's just set between the the aftermath of this and uh, Fernando and Ruby crossing from Mexico to Texas in the fex in the fictional Mexican Revolution of the 1950s, and they're played by Oscar <laughs> Isaac and Lady Gaga. <laughs> and, it's, <laughs> and it's just some of the songs you heard before some of the songs we still didn't manage to get in the first two and it's called Mamma Mia there was something in the air that night <laughs> yes I mean uh, we've got some pretty heavyweight screenwriters contributing to this one but I really yeah. believe that the Mamma Mia franchise could be elevated to greatness if the next one was scripted by Cormac McCarthy <laughs> 
<laughs> it could be a turn. I mean, the alternative is I know that this one already has like the gap between the gap since the last one and the Andy Garcia. But should mm. the next one do the Godfather Part Three, <laughs> even though this kind of does the Godfather Part Three by having those like just... in in Mamma Mia Three. <laughs> Like the Vatican gets involved. The Vatican gets involved. <laughs> yeah. And Sophia yeah. Coppola shows up as another yeah. long lost daughter. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's Amanda Seyfried as an, as an older woman. It can be about her grown up kids, but maybe only one of them's a kid and she doesn't know which one is her kid. <laughs> Depending on how dark you want to take it, it'll be called Mamma Mia, How Can I Resist You? Or ah. uh, Mamma Mia, I Could Never Let You Go. It's just. Um, <laughs> Depends yes. on if you want the slow piano scary versions in the trailer or not. <laughs> Just when I thought I was out. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so that 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 is quite a staggering moment and made me forgive a lot of my misgivings about the film. Because I, I don't know if, for all that I said, I kind of prefer the older cast in some ways. And I think that's more central yeah. to Mamma Mia's appeal. Uh, I can't think of much that really happens in the present day frame before that. I mean, there's there's some business, I guess. That that would be how I'd describe it. Yeah, it's um there's a storm, there's a bit where I bought, and um I don't have a lot else really. There's another big party at the end. And yeah, it is it, it is all pretext really. And I, um I just think that it somehow implausibly, in spite of everything, manages to link that up quite nicely by the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, you know, part of the pleasure of this kind of a musical where it's not, you know, son time, it's meant to be a sort of light feel-good comedy, uh is just being able to pull off that kind of a big finale in a way that doesn't make you feel jerked around waiting for it. And he does manage that. And um, yeah, we should talk a bit about Al Parker because he was kind of a left field choice to direct. Felida Lloyd obviously has the history um, with the property and she'd Hmm. made a few films in between. She'd made uh, the Iron Lady, starring Dame Edna Everidge. there's There's a film that could have used some other... Absolutely, yes. Uh, I I hear good things about her new film herself, even though I haven't seen it yet. But um, yeah, Hmm. they they went with Parker, who's more prominent as a screenwriter, most notably for the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel films than the director. Yeah, we're saying quite late in the podcast, but he he now has the claim to having two unimprovably titled sequels. Because we have Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, which is an amazing, <laughs> yes. again, unimproved. But then the second best exotic Marigold Hotel is a fantastic title as well. It's very self-aware, isn't it? It's like saying, yeah. look, don't, yeah. don't get your hopes up that high, but... Yeah, I, th- I think I think that helps, like, in this case, like, the self-awareness does help a little bit. It's mm. as... I, I, I don't want to keep saying they understand the assignment, but they do. It's, it's where we're at. You know, we, the the main like signpost of a, of it being a, a Richard Curtis thing is that it does have the things that people like in Richard Curtis films. It has a, a funny supporting character played by Omid Jalili, yes. who is kind of somehow present in both the 70s and in the present day, and has a running <laughs> gag about people not looking like their passport photos, and he's really funny. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, but 
Parker had he, he directed some sort of small things. I think his most notable directorial credit was Imagine Me and You, which didn't do massive mm. business when it came out of the cinema, but has had a long, long afterlife on first DVD and then streaming, uh, particularly among uh, lesbians who are looking for a movie about lesbians that doesn't leave you utterly depressed at the end. And those are very hard to find. <laughs> More could be finer. Yeah. Um so so he had that going for him. Um but yeah, he, he was a very unexpected choice to do a big musical. And I think credit where credit is due, he has studied classic musicals. He understands that a musical number has to have a bit of sort of stage illusion in it. The Waterloo bit, again, has those extraordinary bits where people just hold the French flag up in front of the screen and they pull it down there's been a change of scene. And it's like, obviously, yeah. that's a stage trick. Obviously, when you're doing it on film, you could easily just digitally smooth away the cuts a la Birdman, but isn't this more fun? Isn't this more theatrical? Doesn't this give you more of a sort of, more of a proper musical vibe? And I, I hate to say that because it sounds really snobby. And I do think that Jukebox musicals done right are absolutely proper musicals. But compared to Felida Lloyd's direction, I did respect the fact that all Parker has put in the hours and studied things that you need to do in order to make you feel like you're watching, you know, showboats or something. Yeah, it doesn't always feel more more theatrical. Mm. Sorry, more cinematic. I mean, the opposite, I was going to say. Well, it doesn't always feel more... Really, yeah. You know, I don't <laughs> yeah. think Felita Lloyd's film even feels like good theatre. You know, well, I've seen some yeah. of the theatre pieces. I've seen her yeah. version of Julius Caesar. Yeah, you know, I had mixed feelings about it, but I will say that in terms of stage blocking, in terms yeah. of understanding where actors have to stand for maximum effect, she is really yeah. good, which makes the sort of lackadaisical home movie look of the first Mamma Mia even more of a mystery. Yeah, like if 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 you Skinner singing Waterloo was in the first one, it would be you'd be sort of looking at your watch probably <laughs> if it's yeah. just locked off cameras and stuff it's a more dynamic sequence even if you're not especially enjoying the song <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> yeah i think yeah just from this from the story up like from it is in more ways it isn't always more a film than just just a recorded <laughs> staging you know it's, it's yeah this yeah yeah uh so are there any final thoughts on it before we uh, move on? I've been struck by that. I've remembered Hugh Skinner's name feeling wrong for the longest time, and it suddenly struck me that's because he sounds like a hybrid of the two lead adult actors in Outnumbered. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's what's throwing me. And Hugh Skinner, yeah. no, it's, it's Hugh Dennis and Claire Skinner. It can't be him. What What's his name again? It throws me. Yeah. yeah. When... When I was saying Harry Skinner earlier on, I was like, isn't that the block off The Simpsons? And it's not, it's Shearer, and now there's, <laughs> there's blades everywhere. Oh, Pierce Brosnan, oh no, more blades. It's so many knife <laughs> names in these films. Um, I've, I've, my thoughts are all now towards what Mamma Mia 3 is going to be. I feel like it's going to happen. <laughs> That's yeah. it, 2028. It would be on the current schedule. Yeah, I, I suppose it's it's like... 
it's quite a nice thing to think that there will still be a civilization to broadcast a Mamma <laughs> Mia sequel to in 2028. I think that's the appeal of these films. They give you something to hold on for. It's going to be that end game moment. You just see like a crackling radio, <laughs> car radio <laughs> probably. It'll have to be a bloody drive-in. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, you'll just start hearing the strains of, I don't know, I can't think of any films, any songs that haven't um, actually made it into the first two. So let's just say Dancing Queen again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they do reuse a couple in here. And this does have one of the other songs I actually rather like. It does have uh, Name of the Game, which I'm quite fond yeah. of. But um, yeah, what else could they do? I don't know. Maybe there is a future in doing like Abba Deep Cuts, the B side <laughs> to Super Trooper or something. That could be interesting. <laughs> Get Porter's head in to cover them all. Ben Wheatley directs <laughs> Mamma Mia 3. You thought old Parker was an off kilter choice. Here comes Ben Wheatley's Mamma Mia, I could never let you go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at the moment, he just signed up to do the sequel to The Meg, so it wouldn't be the most incongruous thing he's got on his plate. Yeah, and why not? He can fit it in in between yeah. other things, I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, one of the beautiful things about Ben Wheatley doing a big assignment is that he usually makes a really great film for no money while he's editing it. So, you know, I'm up for that. Yep. So we'll get that um, sent off to the people who make these films. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, I think that about wraps it up for Mamma Mia. Here we go again for another 10 years, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's your lot for Pop Screen until, well, we, we, we're taking a week's break, uh, as we occasionally do before the next episode. But when we come back in two weeks' time, we will have the promised Rocket Man episode, mm-hmm. which I'm really excited about. Um in the meantime, if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it around. Please uh, give us a review on your podcast provider of choice because that actually helps out more than you'd think. And if you enjoy it a, a lot, like, you know, £1 or £3 a month a lot, uh, you can go to our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash The Geek Show where you get a monthly bonus episode of podcast. The, this podcast, access to our other movie podcast, Director's Lottery, two weekly Doctor Who reviews, and any funny little offcuts that we just thought were too good to waste. But until a fortnight's time, when we will be back with Rocket Man, that's been your lot from Pop Screen. I've been Graham. I've been Mark, and to quote my love, my life, please go away. God bless you. Mm-hmm.